Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back everybody to another episode of the Southern Outdoors Podcast. Y'all better have been out scouting or fishing or something this weekend. Um... Today, we're talking Monsters in Mississippi with Mr. Land Smathers. Land, how you doing, man? I'm going to make it, brother. How about y'all run a free? Yeah, well, I don't know. Probably. I might be asymptomatic. I was talking to Michael mm. today who works in a COVID unit at a hospital here in Birmingham, and he's like, yeah, if, if we were to get tested, I bet we'd both test positive. I was like, great. Awesome. Oh, great. I'm, I'm within six feet of Andrew. Oh, yeah. Fun. <laughs> Just sharing that air, man. Becoming yeah, one. my wife is a, a night ER nurse here in West Point, so I'm sure I've been exposed at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why I just don't do anything except, like, shoot turkeys and catch fish. Well, yeah, I don't go well, around glad, people. Glad you had luck. Well, well that, <laughs> listen, he's had luck shooting the turkeys. I ain't seen him catch a fish yet, so. That's actually, that's mm. correct. I can't, I can't be talking no smack yeah. about fish. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm going to enjoy this, the, this calendar year, though, until next turkey season where I had such a good year I can rub it in your face. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, i got the ginger bow hunter here with me, as always. Yep, yeah, so in person finally again. Yep, finally got person. you back in town. But, Lynn, I know, uh, you know, I'm kind of excited to talk to you uh, really about your style of hunting and everything kind of going on with uh, Mississippi, both – you know, your tactics when it comes to hunting public land and kind of the increased hunting pressure you've seen, I think you said over like the last five years or so, but also kind of how you mess around with some small private properties and, uh, you know, use those to your advantage as well. Because I think that's something that's uh, kind of overlooked with some people. Uh, some people are afraid to knock on some doors, especially on smaller properties. Uh, and you seem to have had uh, fairly good success with that uh, and being able to kill some really good deer off that as well. But um, Lane, if you don't mind, give us maybe a little run through, uh, kind of what, what is your background when it comes to hunting, especially, you know, public land in, in Mississippi, uh, and, and maybe give us a little idea of your style of hunting, uh, when it comes to, especially, you know, some of the public land stuff. Yeah. Um, I started hunting when I was probably, well, I guess eight or 10, something like that. I couldn't carry a gun. My granddad would never let me carry a gun until I was 10 because he said I didn't, I needed to know what it meant to take a life. So I didn't get to actually shoot my first deer until I was 10 years old. And it was a doe. She was about 40 pounds. Um, and then after that, it was home, brother. I mean, after that, if I had a bicycle and somewhere I could hunt, I was going, uh, started hunting public around when, after I got my driver's license, which let's say that would have been 2006. And as soon as I got my driver's license, I was going anywhere I could get to with $20 worth of gas. Um, uh, most of it was local. I started on the Pearl River WMA, which is on the north end of the Ross Barnett Reservoir. And that was good to an extent, um, except that it was like, there was probably four parking areas that you could get to and a, a ton of it you could get to by boat, but I could only get to what I could walk to from the parking areas. So I immediately started looking into what I could do from a boat and a kayak, obviously, or a canoe popped up. So I got one cheap off of Craigslist guy. It had like seven holes in it. So I JB welded the out of it and, <laughs> and got it at least where it would hold me for at least an hour. And I were to keep a, a uh, big nukes restaurant cup in there to bail water out as I'm going up and down the river. But that was great. And it opened up a whole bunch of opportunity for me. Um, the, after that, I went on, did the college thing, all which failed miserably because i was more interested in killing turkeys on knoxby refuge <laughs> south of starful than i was at school and uh i uh left there during the bp oil spill a few years ago and i went to be worked down there for a year and after that i was like man i i can make more money without a college degree than i well at least that was my opinion and I ended up buying a house in Aberdeen, Mississippi, on the Tom Bigby River, which uh, is a tiny town, but there's a lot of public ground around it. 
and that's about all there is to do is hunt or fish on the river around here. And uh, I ended up getting a boat. I resurrected an old 7.5 Mercury Mariner motor out of my granddad's barn and got it running. And now I've been cut loose. I got a whole river at my disposal with a bunch of public land on either side of it and a little bitty old John boat. So that's what I do. With the exception of that, I got four little pieces of property that I have gained permission on after knocking on God knows how many doors. Um, one of them's 11 acres, the other one's 13, one of them's 22 acres. And the one right behind my house, luckily my granddad told me I could hunt it. But other than that, it's that and the, and the, uh, and the river. And my granddad's got a camp on the river. It's 280 acres, but it's 13 members on it, so it's uh, pretty much public. Holy smokes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's a, it's a tough spot to hunt, but it's basically all privet, you know, with a bunch of little slashes and stuff like that on it. So, it's fun to hunt, but it's uh, it's hit or miss. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that thing that you said about <laughs> how many members on that club? release 13 members on 260 or 280 acres whatever it is a tiny little piece holy crap that ain't no yeah, joke man talking nah, about it's, luckily it's uh there's four food plots on the on the whole property and that's where everybody goes except me <laughs> so hey, there you go that's what i'm talking yeah man i grew up hunting clubs in alabama and that's i mean that's what it's like here too i mean the vast majority of leases and clubs are you know sorry if you're in a lease or club but i mean it's really no different than public land in most cases except maybe maybe your pressure is a little bit more predictable and concentrated because you kind of know where everybody hunts but i mean man uh, it, the private land around here gets hammered probably worse than the public land in most cases oh god yeah way, definitely worse and i mean the the access in and out is so predictable so you can absolutely use that to your advantage oh um, yeah because yeah, so, everybody's gonna be walking in on the road and nobody listens to podcasts so <laughs> that's a good thing <laughs> that's right that's right see we're always like begging everyone like please share with your friends but if you're in a club you might not want to share it with your friends <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> oh yeah oh there's a lot to unpack here so um you're talking about a lot of water access um as far as water access goes it sounds like a lot of these places that you're hunting that's a pretty good way to get in there do you see a lot of other people using water access um, I see a lot of people using boat access. You know, there's guys with mud motors and big souped-up boats, $30,000 rigs. And they, uh, as soon as they hit that sandbar, they, they stop real quick. Um, <laughs> so I have I got my little 7.5 and a 16-foot uh, John boat. And I, on top of that, I've got a kayak that I rigged out with a trolling motor, which has been probably the best little piece of equipment that i own a lot of times i'll throw that in the boat with me and i'll run as far as i can in the boat and then after that drop the kayak in the water with that little trolling motor and scat on past everybody else and just grin and wave yeah are you using water access because you can just reach more places or are you deliberately trying to avoid like road pressure pressure 100 percent. use that to my advantage when those guys are coming in off the road Cause they're not, I mean, when you get, I mean, just like I would coming in off the road, when I hit a logging road, I'm not worried about cracking sticks and kicking rocks. I'm just moving, you know, to wherever my destination is. Once I get close, I'll slow down. 
But if you've ever been in the timber, which I know you have, after the leaf leaf drop, you can hear those guys on the logging road for two or three hundred miles. And if we, I mean, two or three hundred yards, if we can hear that, the deer can probably hear that twice as far. Oh yeah. So um, you'll find a lot of the times in the early season that's when I really get after the public land because there's probably I would say half the people hunting it as there would be when the guns hit when the guns hit the public land goes so (laughs) most of the time i just hunt those spots where i know that i can hear the guys and coming from i'm gonna think about that and i'm gonna push towards the river or towards the thicker areas that have food in them the food is the most important thing on the public ground around here because there's I mean, there's a lot in the summertime, but once you hit that September, October time when the nutrient density starts to fall, they're really going to be um, pushed in the areas with more acorns or say, um, I don't know what it's called, but there's some slough grass that grows up in these old sloughs. It's like green and uh, it's not cuckleburrs, but they really hammer that stuff until it falls. Even when it turns brown, it's almost like soybean. They'll hammer it until it just withers off and falls off the stalk. I wish I knew what that stuff was called, but mm-hmm. I have yet to been able to find it. Well, so we want to definitely dive into the thickets and the food and all that kind of stuff. But before, I got to ask you about, so so how do you have your kayak set up to get in there? All right. So uh, most of the time, you know, I could, I could use a 12-foot, but I don't have the... Uh, I don't need it because I have a 10 foot and I'm hunting off the ground 90% of the time. So I have a Turkey stool. Um, I'm sure you've seen them. It's the got a little like three and four inch legs on it mm-hmm. that you fold out. It's got a strap that goes around your shoulder and I've got a little cushion that I've zip tied on all four corners to the top of it. That's what I bow hunt off of 90% of the time. Um, so I don't need a 12 foot kayak that's, that's going to give me the room to have that trolling motor, a battery, the extra standing sticks or whatever it is on it. The, the kayak itself, I've got two of them. One of them is a Pelican 10 foot. It's just a standard kayak. There's nothing special about it. I just add a little paint job to it. Um, the other one is a Walmart sun dolphin. 10 foot uh it's the cheap it's like 220 240 240 um and i threw a trolling motor that you can get from walmart on it i think the trolling motor is uh, 120 bucks or something like that but it's specifically made for a kayak it's got a little mount that you bolt on the back of the kayak i wish i knew what that dang thing what the brand name was of it was but for if you take 400 dollars into walmart you can get you a kayak, a good paddle, other than the one that comes with it, this trolling motor with the mount, and a battery. Holy smokes. Um, oh, it's it's plenty of power. It's, it's no frills, but, I mean, that battery, I can't remember the wattage. I'm terrible with details, but, yeah, I mean, I can run that thing for three or four hours straight with a regular old car battery. Um and it'll get you places you'd never, I mean, it'll, it'll literally, it, it drops right beside my left hip. That's where I've got it mounted. It drops right in. It's sitting even 
with the bottom of where my kayak is drafting. So if my kayak can get through it, this boat motor will push it through it. Um, which I think that's four inches, five inches, something like that. But yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's one thing that a lot of guys have uh, thought more and more about is, you know, different ways to get in uh, where you don't have to have, you know, a, you know, a massive boat. And I think using a kayak like that, uh, especially, you know, hooking it with a trolling motor just so you're working a little bit less and maybe you can get in a little bit quicker. Um, that'll be something that I think is, you know, a huge advantage in a lot of situations. So that, that's a really cool setup. And, you know, with the whole boat access thing, just while we're on that topic, you know, I think that gives, you know, a different perspective, and I know you understand this, on how you can get into places, especially if you know there's pressure coming, say, from the road um, or from other areas, even if there's other boats out there. You know, especially with a kayak, you'd be able to get farther back in some of those sloughs maybe and maybe get up some uh, different creeks and everything that you're not getting a big boat up through. Uh, and then also having something that you can quickly and quietly ease around on uh, without having all the, you know, the noise that you get from outboard. Um, you know, there's a lot of times when that kayak can be so efficient. And like you said, you were talking about, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you said you were using the, the John boat uh, to kind of get in there, and then you got the kayak on top of the John boat. Is that correct? Right. It's a 16-foot John boat and a 10-foot kayak. So the kayak just kind of sits in there. Now, it's a, it's a custom-made um, John boat. So it's instead of having the seats that stretch the the width of the, the boat, you know how a typical John boat has one, two middle seats and then the one seat up at the front. This one, all the seats are cut in half. So my right side of my boat is a, basically a, a, the middle of it is a little seat that stretches half the width of the boat. And then I can drop the kayak in the other half. Mm -hmm. So I run you know, as far as I can with that, which most of the runs around here, um, you can go a couple hundred yards up into them and then they silt out because when they cut the channel, most of this up here is the channel that they cut back in the, I think it was the eighties or late seventies sometime. But they basically, if you take the old river and so you get a ton of these little oxbows and river runs from the old river that, they're either silted in at the mouth or you can run a hundred yards, 200 yards at the mouth of them. And, you know, a lot of times if, when you get out on the bank right there where they silt in, I, if you're just a, you've got a regular boat, you know, you're going to get out right there where it silts in. They, it's a wall of cane for a hundred yards or privet or whatever it is. It's just, it's miserable to try to get through. So that kayak kind of gives you an opportunity to get on up a little bit deeper to where it opens up. Um, I don't know if a lot of that's because they couldn't ever get that close to the river to uh, cut the timber or what, but it's just it's super thick right within that first 200 yards of the river bank, the canal bank. Very nice. That's, that's a really good um you know, kind of topic and kind of describing that. I think that's, you know, relatable for guys that are kind of hunting, you know, places like that throughout the Southeast. Um, now, one thing that I want to kind of dive into, you know, you know, the whole water access thing is really interesting, really fascinating. But one thing you mentioned earlier that I think we really want to dive into is how you, 
especially on public land, hunt off the ground, especially with a bow, using like a turkey seat. So let me ask you this. What got you into doing that instead of, you know, climbing the old climber or taking the old climber in or, or hang on or something like that? I've got a um, a lock-on stick set that I, st- I still use it a couple a few times a year in, op- in uh, situations where I need to. But if, if I'm going in on a spot that I don't know anything about it or I'm gonna just going to scout my way in, 100% of the time, I'm going to take that. I've got a uh, that turkey stool, and I've got one of those little stakeout blankets. It's basically like two feet tall. You know what I'm talking about? That you stick in front of you, and you can see over the top of it. Yeah, and you're talking about a stakeout blind, right? Right, right. I've got one of those, but it's a um, uh, Primos makes it with that see-through fabric. Mm-hmm. I've got one of, and it's uh, I think that thing's like 36 inches or 48 inches tall. So you can get behind it, and you can see everything in front of you, but you're still concealed a little bit. And then other than that, I've got a pair of snips, and I'll go out and I'll snip cane shoots, I mean, privet shoots, whatever it takes to break up the outline of the top of that thing because that horizontal line is going to stick out horribly to any wild animal. I mean, turkeys, deer, anything that horizontal line that that blind creates up top is off. So you need anything and everything to break that up. Once you get that, got that taken care of, you can sit back and relax. You're, you're done. I mean, all you can get away with murder literally inside of that thing. And the Turkey stool, to be honest with you, is just for comfort. I mean, you could sit on your knees if you wanted to, but I ain't sitting on my knees for three or four hours. So let me ask you this. Uh, again, I'm very fascinated with the whole bow hunting off the ground. I've done it uh, quite a bit in the past and had success doing it, um, You know, especially shooting some does and, and young bucks doing that way. Uh, and to me, it's there's such an adrenaline rush, even shooting a doe off the ground like that, when you're on you know eye level with that thing, um, you know, in, you know, kind of, you know, secluded in like some kind of, you know, thick little area. Um, and you know, you're getting a shot, you know, at something under 20 yards is this something that I I absolutely get fired up about and get excited about. But let me ask you this, what got you to start doing that? When did that kind of click that, Hey, I can have success hunting off the ground. Um, and and, you know, what was that transition like? Cause I'm sure, I don't know, maybe you started like that, but I don't think many guys do. Man, my first deer I ever shot with a boat, I was sitting on top of a stump when I was uh, 13 years old, I had just gotten this bow. I didn't know anything about deer hunt. I mean, bow hunting for deer. I was sitting on top of a stump and behind my girlfriend's house in this little pasture. And there was a giant oak tree right in front of me. And I'd seen, you could, you could sit on her back porch. I probably did something horrible, but I, you could sit on her back porch and watch these deer. They love watching them coming out every evening, but I'm a killer with a bow now. <laughs> so I'm sitting on a stump and this little buck walks up. I, 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 it was 10 or 12 yards. I mean, right in front of me, I'm sitting on top of this stump behind the tree that the oaks are dropping from big water oak. I drew back and walked out the other side. I shot him right in the Luckily, I had a, a pod, a poison pod, because my buddy's dad that introduced me to bow hunting said, your first couple of deer, you need a poison pod because you're going to mess up. Um, luckily, he did that because, I mean, I made a terrible shot. You might have to edit this out of the 
podcast. <laughs> but he ran he ran eighty yards, tipped over, died. It was the the greatest thing in my life. After that, um, it was you know being broken in from sitting on the ground like that. You think you can kill every deer from the ground? It wasn't until later on when my buddies were using these climbers and they had you know, 10 or 12 pre-hung stands on their camps and all that, lock-ons that, that I realized you could hunt like that. But growing up, I hunted out of an eight-foot-tall aluminum little lean-up thing that my granddad had that was, it was it looked like a ladder with a little seat at the top. That was one I hunted out of with a rifle. The, the Hunting off the ground was just easier. And nowadays, I appreciate a lot more, especially when you carry that stand in there with the sticks and you got to hang that thing on October 10th when it's 80 degrees with 120% humidity. Um, it just, honestly, it makes sense to me to hunt off the ground with that light. I think that rig with the, uh, with the turkey stool and the blind uh, strapped together weighs like 1.8 pounds or something like that, 2.8 pounds. So it's nothing. And I mean, there's plenty of cover to get it to surround yourself with early season like that. Yeah. Now I want to start jumping into some, some more tactical based stuff, but first, uh, about the poison pod thing that's legal in Mississippi, which a lot of people might've heard that and been like, what? (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I got a buddy in South Dakota and he's like, that is some horse. I cannot believe you did that for (laughs) you. <laughs> that is terrible. You ought to feel terrible, but hey, I mean, who knows what would happen had I stuck that deer with a muzzy hundred grain pulling forty five pounds, you know, right yeah. in the hill. But thank God I had the poison pods. But uh, so wait, hold yeah, on. I don't know if it's still legal or not, but it was when I did that. So so what is a point? Again, I'm just coming. I have no idea what what is that. It's basically, uh, they're, they're, man, you're going to bring on a lot of contention with this. I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> it's basically a paralytic. It's like that I shot my first deer with it. That was it. But it basically paralyzes the lungs of an animal, I think. Um, and when you hit it, it as long as they, they it's kind of like shooting a, a, uh, a dart on an animal to uh, put it to sleep for a little while so like they shoot lines with them and stuff in the hip you want to shoot it in the back quarter where there's a lot of arterial blood flow as soon as you get it in that blood flow it goes directly to the lungs the heart and all that and it's just like lights out um some people don't like it i understand it i mean i don't shoot it now i haven't shot it since then but it's just a powder that you put in this little black casing right behind the broadhead and there's a balloon that goes around kind of north to south towards the broadhead. And when the broadhead enters the animal, that balloon rolls back and it is that powder into the, the, the wound. And I mean, it's, it's, it's deadly. Wow. That's, that's crazy. I've never heard about that. That's again, that's kind of fascinating on that aspect. Yeah. Yeah, Last, I mean, I think it's still legal in Alabama. That's last I heard it was, but I think that's where I think that's legal in Alabama. No, I'm wrong. Never mind. Okay. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Is it? I I have no No. clue. I mean, I've never looked at that in the, in the, I haven't looked at it in the race. I don't know who, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Really? Whatever. Anyone listening to this podcast right now, don't go try that without 
you know. Yeah. yeah Definitely she, go try that without looking up the road. <laughs> and then when you get a ticket, be like, well, the Southern Outdoorsman told me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. said it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's uh, man, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I think Mississippi might be one of the only. I haven't heard of another state that allowed that. I don't know if they still do. I'm sure that we'll get some uh, messages with people. Mississippi, uh, we do, do what? We holding out on everything in Mississippi, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh God. Let well hold on. Let's let's jump into some some deer hunting, some tactical stuff mm-hmm. here. All right. So, okay. All right. Um. So we're <laughs> set. Okay, listen. Okay, let's, I want to talk a little bit about the ground hunting a little bit more and dive more into this. Okay, because it seems like again, like you were explaining, you got got brought up hunting off the ground, especially like you know with a bow or rifle. It really doesn't matter. It seemed like, but explain like what is your setup? I mean, you kind of talked about with the blind and you know trimming some stuff, but like what is your perfect setup when you're hunting on the ground? You know, what are you trying to get set up inside of? I mean, are you set at the base of a trunk tree? Are you trying to set up in some privet? You know, what does that look like to you uh, when you're trying to pick out a spot to hunt off the ground? All right. So my hunting started at turkeys. My granddad is a big turkey hunter. And that's my dad died when I was five. So all I had to base my granddad taught me. Um, He's a big turkey hunter. And it's religion that when you set up on a turkey, you put your off shoulder towards that turkey. Works perfect for deer, especially bow hunting. So whenever I'm setting up, whether it be a feed tree, trail, um, the, uh, a funnel, anything like that, I'm going to try to put that animal at 18. 18 yards is my favorite. I don't know why 18 over 20, but I just prefer 18. But 18 to 30 yards, I'm going to put it to where my shot is. If you're looking at 12 o'clock, it's straight in front of you that animal is going to be at two thirty when I make that shot. Um, right in between two and three o'clock. That's what I want. I'm going to set up to where that animal is going to enter from my three o'clock set. Well, I am now a left-handed shooter. I've been right-handed all my life, but I had eye surgery this past summer. So I had to, I had to switch to left-handed, um, I, which I've always shot rifles left and right handed, but bow was, has, it's been awkward as shit trying to <laughs> make that switch. Um, but so I guess for a right handed shooter, that would be between your uh, nine and 10 o'clock is where I'm going to try and put that shot, which I mean, th- when you're standing there shooting practice, that's what you're going to be shooting at is typically that nine o'clock to maybe nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm always going to put that somewhere with between 18 and 20 yards. I'm going to set up just like I do for a Turkey where my off shoulder, the one that I don't have the butt of my gun is pointed towards the direction where I expect that Turkey or deer to come from. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. That makes total I sense. got a squirrel's brain, dude. I'm sorry. No, no, you're perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I again, I, I agree. Now, that being said, again, you're wanting that deer. I, I'm me and Andrew are both right-handed shooters, so we're thinking about you know having the deer you know come out, or you're trying to make that shot that nine or ten cop position, you know, right-handed shoot like you said, you know, three to two o'clock, give or take. Um, yep. Now that setup, are you trying to put your back up against a tree, 
Are you? Yes. Tr- okay, so you're trying yes. to put your back up against a tree, and then you're trying to have that blind kind of just quartered towards where that deer is possibly going to be at. Is that kind of what you're setting up, or do you put that blind directly in front of you and then kind of rush in the sides? I'm going to hope that I'm going to put that blind in the perfect position that it needs to be to make that ideal shot. Now, which that's going to leave, you know, some of your offside open. It's not hard to hide from a deer. As long as you're not skylined, if you're sitting on the ground, you just need to be still. If you've got on camo, you're behind some cover. You, you got it covered. Uh, when you're skyline, that's when you look awkward, you know, as whatever, sitting up in that tree. And there's this big mass sitting up there. They're trying, they're already leery of it. And then you got a face without a face mask, or you've got a, a, some movement or whatever. Maybe they've smelled you. Um, the, the biggest thing that let me preface by saying this my favorite part of hunting off the ground is your ability to control your wind. Your wind, especially in the evening, is sitting right with you. As, I mean, if there's no wind, it's sitting right there at you. If there's a little bit of wind, it's going to be moving the true direction of where the wind's blowing. When you're up in a tree, it could be swirling. You don't know what it's doing because it's got to fall to hit the ground before it moves. Or it could be, you know, if you've got a north wind, it's it depending on how hard it is, it could not even be hitting the ground. It could just be headed south for God knows how far. Um, when you're on the ground, the wind is much more predictable, especially in a creek bottom where you know on a on a calm evening that wind is going to be sucking towards the water which is cooler um on the edge of a ridge you know for a fact which way that wind is moving it's going to be falling in the afternoon off the side of that ridge i i don't practice any kind of scent control i just hunt the wind and it's much 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 easier to predict what it's going to be doing when you're on the ground with it rather than being up in a tree that's a really interesting topic, and we've got a, a friend of the show, uh, Michael Yates, who has the exact same uh, thought process. And he, he's a he's a big ground hunter from up in Tennessee, and he's originally from um, Missouri, and that's his thought process too is, you know, when you're on the ground, if the wind isn't blowing really hard and you're on the ground, your, your scent and your, you know, your quote-unquote scent cone is really more close to you. It's not drifting out away from you all that much, at least from his personal right. experience. Uh, when you're up in the air, you know, it could be lofting, you know, back and forth, especially depending on what the thermals are doing. Um, right. So, so I, I completely can relate with that and kind of get that understanding because he's explained it to us. And, again, that makes sense in a lot of situations. Uh, plus, you can stay, you know, mobile on the ground. If you need to make a, you know, a last-minute decision like, okay, hey, you know, I think I need to move over to this tree or, you know, maybe I need to move back or whatever, you can do it a lot easier than if you're stuck up in the tree, especially if the wind shifts on you. Um, now, one thing I'm kind of interested in is, you know, your shots and the movement, especially bow hunting off the ground. You know, are, do you see yourself being able to get get away with some movement on the ground, or is it pretty, you know, tight when you know you're trying to make that deer, you're trying to hope that deer looks away or something for you to get drawn back and get a shot ready? I'm typically going to be making that draw whenever I have the opportunity. I mean, it could be when he's coming in. If he's, you know, during the rut, he's not worried about one thing. And uh, when he's coming in, if you've got if he's drop, he got his nose to the ground. He's just kind of loafing like a dog does. You can draw back with him walking towards you. 
Um, early season, I'm going to be a lot, they're going to be a lot more alert. I'm going to be very cautious on what I do. I'm going to typically wait for an opportunity, uh, kind of like he's going to, if I'm at a feed tree, I will wait till he gets to the feed tree as long as I know my wind's not iffy and I'll just wait for the right opportunity. Um, it, during mid season when he's cruising, you can do about the same thing. Um, just be a little more precautious. If he's behind a doe, you can do whatever you want. You can stand up in that blind and take the perfect shot if you wanted to. It's going to be quick. But um, the first deer I shot this past year, which was the first weekend, the first week of October, I didn't even have a blind. Sometimes I don't even carry the blind. I don't set it up. If there's a big enough tree and I've got the right cover around me, um, I'll just sit with my back to the tree and I always wear a leafy suit. Um, it's a $20 leafy suit off of Amazon. Uh, I think that does a lot, a lot of good for you. That deer, I shot him at 18 yards. He was working a scrape on October 5th. Never even knew I was there when I grew back and shot him. Is so, that, is that the book that, uh, the photo with the, in the kayak, is that that deer? In the no, that was uh, the first where I've got. Uh, let's see, I had a flannel. I think I got a flannel on in that picture, a black and green flannel. Yeah, that's what I was wearing. I was wearing a pair of Carhartt pants, a khaki Carhartt pants, and a flannel shirt. I just happened to have uh, like three small little yearling cedars right in front, in between me and him and the uh, live oaks that I shot him under. Mm-hmm. So that's all I needed. I didn't need that blind. Yeah, me and Andrew are looking at that photo right now, dude. That is a freaking great deer. Oh, yeah, it is. So that's awesome. Well, you know, I think a lot of guys are really interested in the whole idea of staying mobile and hunting off the ground just because, you know, it's one less thing to carry in the woods with whether you're hunting with a tree stand or hunting with a saddle or, you know, whatever you're taking in the woods. It's just one less thing you can carry and have to worry about finding a tree. Uh, and that's one thing. I love doing it early season. I've talked about in the podcast – over the last two seasons, especially since I hunt, started hunting Tennessee, I started doing that more and more, especially in areas that have privet. I don't know what it is about privet, but to me, especially on a day with a little bit of wind or a little bit of rain or something, you can slip hunt with a bow through that stuff. And now I'm not going to say you're killing the biggest buck you've ever killed in your entire life, but you can slip hunt through that if you're careful. And I've had success doing it. It's the most fun I've ever had whitetail hunting. A hundred percent. It is It is a blast, especially on public land. You're slip hunting. I mean, you're scouting while you're doing it, and that's why I love it because you're looking through that stuff, especially the privet. And anybody that's listening to the podcast now, I know we have listeners across the country. You know, privet, uh, Chinese privet is something that is, I mean, I, Andrew, is there anything you can relate with that would be a vegetation in another part of the country that someone could understand what privet could be like? Uh, dude, I don't know. I think most people have privet. So. Okay. So, well, privet. If you don't know what privet is, look it up online. Just Google privet, okay? Mm-hmm. It is... It's like Cain had a baby with an oak tree. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's pretty good. That's an excellent... That's excellent. Excellent description. 
Well, the um, but the, the whole thing about privet. One thing I like about it, and like slip hunting through that stuff. I, I've hunted some places in Tennessee that has a lot of it, and um, when you slip hunt through it, I mean, you're literally looking for. I'm literally looking for the horizontal back of a deer. Like you're not looking for a deer, you're looking for a piece of a deer, a horizontal back of a deer. You know, the the vertical part of a leg, you know, the the white of its belly or a tail. And when you see it and you stop, dude, listen, there is nothing more that gets, I mean, other, other than a couple really big bucks I've ran into up there, there is not much, nothing more that gets me so fired up as slip hunting like that with a bow in your hand with a little bit of wind and then seeing there's a doe like 20 yards in front of you that you just slipped up on feeding. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it, but I mean, no matter what, even just hunting off the ground, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, last year on the podcast, uh, I think this, yeah, this video is on YouTube. Uh, last year on the podcast, I actually shot a spike in Tennessee on public land, hunting off the ground. And to be honest, it was one of my favorite hunts of the whole year. Okay, oh, and I, yeah. and it's not necessarily just about me killing just a spike. Which again, some people are like, well, why would you do that? It was the overall experience of shooting it off the ground at like nine yards broadside. And the deer running forty yards and falling down, and just like the whole setup and everything. I mean, it. I mean, it could have been a doe fawn or whatever, and I still would have shot it. But um, it, it, the experience of hunting off the ground. If you've never tried it, to any listeners, I highly recommend it because I think it will give you a different perspective on not only the confidence of hunting off the ground once you you know get a couple hunts under your belt and you understand what movement you can get away with, what you can't get away with, what setup you need, how much you know back you know, backdrop cover you need, how much stuff you need in front of you. Um, but really just how many more opportunities it opens up, especially in places that don't have, you know, all that many great trees to get up in. Um, and it's the best shot angle possible. hundred percent, dude. Like you can't get a better shot angle than off the ground, especially at a it's deer. It's just like shooting at your target. Exactly. And, you know, especially if you're standing up. Now, if you're standing on the ground, I mean, it's perfect horizontal, like right directly to the deer. But if you're standing up, if for some reason, like you're slip hunting, you're standing when you shoot a deer, it's a nice, like, gradual downward angle. And, I mean, the penetration. Oh, dude. I mean, especially, you know, if you're shooting like a, you know, a fixed, like a heavy fixed blade arrow or even a big mechanical, it doesn't really matter. And you get that downward angle like that. I mean, you get unbelievable penetration especially if you can get that deer you know slightly quartering away or just you know um uh broadside to you uh but that's one reason i started and land i don't know what you do i don't know if you're you know an arrow nut or you just shoot whatever you have but that's one reason why i switched this year to try to shoot a heavier arrow with a bigger fixed blade just because you know some of those shot angles off the ground you need as much penetration as possible getting through that deer and i want something that you know hits it like a freight train and keeps on going um but uh absolutely uh, yeah i shoot um i generally shoot you know this year when like i said i switched to left-handed so i didn't have 14 1500 bucks to drop on a brand new bow just to shoot left-handed for a year so i got a matthews mission hammer h-a-m-r and i got five deer with it this year and i'm shooting a gold tip hunter 300 which, I mean, that's kind of a beefy era, but it's not super beefy. And uh, 125 grain NAP kill zone. So with a 50 grain brass insert. So it's a little bit heavy up front. Not a lot. It, it doesn't make sense physically. Um, but it works perfect. And I'm, I will shoot a deer at 40 yards in a heartbeat with it. Um, 
but I, I I don't know the grains. I would say it's somewhere probably between four hundred and four forty, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, it worked perfect on every deer I shot, and one of them went through both whatever that little cartilage blade is off the back side of each shoulder. Mm-hmm. In fact, that first buck I shot, I think it was at yeah, it was at nine point or eight point nine point whatever he was. Um, it went through both of them and I mean, it, it dulled the broadhead, but other than that, it was good. Yeah. And I remember you post that, that was back in October. I remember you post that post on the running gun page, which by the way, a little shout out. If you're listening to the podcast and you're not part of the running gun, whitetail hunters page, make sure you join. Um, but, uh, I remember when you posted that and I was very impressed with it. Cause first off, like you said, you were just wearing that, uh, the, uh, the flannel shirt, the khaki, khaki pants and the boots and i mean freaking you know killed a, a stud buck with that um but you know like you were saying shooting him off the ground with a you know with a, a pretty you know solid setup is was awesome but you know i think again this is a cool opportunity for guys to go out and try that especially early season um when a lot of times i don't know what your personal experience is with it but you know i don't know where you hunt but where we hunt especially early season you know, especially in these thick areas, you know, there's so many big saplings and stuff in those areas. A lot of times that, you know, they're all leafed out early season. If you get up in a tree and you get more than probably 10 feet up in a lot of cases, you can't see. And there's not many shooting lanes if possible in a lot of those spots. Uh, where yes. if you sit on the ground, it's, a, I mean, it's thick enough that you can hide yourself, but it's a little more open where you can actually make shots, you know, 20, 25 yards in some of those areas. Exactly. You cut some of them sweet gum top, sweet gum tops out, blind yourself in a little bit. All you need to be able to see is as far as you can shoot. And if you're hunting in an area, you already know the deer are using because it's a trail, it's a creek crossing, it's a feed tree, it's something you don't need to be able to see 200 yards. Now, that being said, I think it's best to observe more than you actually hunt a deer. Um, in areas where possible, uh, generally speaking, I like to sit back if I can two or 300 yards and I got my bow with me just in case, but I want to put eyes on what I'm thinking is a good plan and see if it actually is. If it is, especially in early season, if you see a buck doing something that you're hoping he's doing, there's a good chance he's going to do it again, especially if you don't spook him. So you wait, you bide your time, you wait on the right wind, go in and you capitalize, push hard in the first time you get, the first chance you get. If you get a good wind and it's, you know, five to 10 miles an hour is perfect in my opinion in this area that I hunt. Um, it's going to be pretty steady. Get Push in as close as you can and try to capitalize because that's, there, the window of opportunity is pretty slight, you know, two to three weeks when it comes to early season and that time when they start busting up and you'll get them on camera. That's when the, that's when things start going haywire. So let me ask you this, because, uh, again, I'm extremely fascinated with the whole – anytime I talk to a guy that has success hunting off the ground, especially with a bow, you know, I'm, I'm all ears. Um, run me through your gear list. What are you carrying in the woods every time you hunt off the ground? Like, run me through absolute, you know, for the most part, everything. Are you carrying a backpack in with a bunch of gear, or are you going pretty ultra light with just the, the your bow and your uh, seat? I got my seat. I've got my blind, whether I use it or not. I use it about half the time. Um, depending on how much cover I've got, 
I've got a pair of snips, shears, whatever you want to call them, to cut some some blind materials with. I got my bow. I've uh, got a grunt call most of the time. Um, when I'm on the ground, it's uh, I don't grunt at a deer unless he's moving away from me. If he's in the area and he's kind of, you know how they'll do, and especially in the southeast, these deer, a lot of time they don't move a lot. They'll walk like two steps and they'll just sit there and look around. If you try to grunt to that deer, he's going to pinpoint your exact location and eventually he's going to pick you out. Um, or he's going to circle downwind trying to figure out exactly what you are. He's not just going to come Iowa stomping up in there and try to figure you out, ears pinned back. Um, that's about it. I've got a, a glass of water. I got my phone to piss some time away with. And, um, but other than that, that's about it. I got a GoPro I carry sometimes um, just to put on a, a above me for a camera angle. But I don't carry it a lot of times, especially if I'm not real confident on a spot. <laughs> when you're hunting off the ground, explain to me what are you looking for? And let's talk early season first, okay? You know, we're talking about, you know, you like hunting off the ground. You kind of let us through the setups. But what are you looking for when hunting off the ground? Let's talk early season, the first two weeks of y'all season, which is normally in October, right? So let's right. let's let's dive in and maybe walk us through a couple early, maybe an early season hunt or two on what you're trying to look at, what you're trying to capitalize on early season. Uh, early season, 100% of the time is food, 100% of the time, and it's, 90% of the time going to be at oak trees. Uh, a lot, of, most of the time I spend in September, I don't, I don't go in the woods much in the summertime, you know, June, July, August, I'll wait till September when you can really see those green acorns starting to develop on an oak. And I'll go to areas where I've either found oak trees that would line, that would set up. A lot of times you want to find, thicker areas and if you've got you know i know y'all see it a lot of times in the areas y'all hunt thick thick pines oh yeah and uh, hardwood bottoms got me excited just saying that welcome to the thicket (laughs) everybody in the world knows deer gonna sleep in the pine thicket they're gonna feed in the acorns the problem is they're gonna feed in them acorns a lot of times at night but there's a lot of this stuff that they eat right on the edge of that thicket Maybe even, you know, you look at most of these hardwood cuts and I mean, pine cuts are going to be right up next to these oaks. And some of the, a lot of times those older oaks are going to drop acorns off into the pine thicket, 20, 30 yards, depending on the, the, the size of the oak tree the, you, unless you're hunting right there on top of that edge, a lot of times you'll walk out into that edge and you'll see just basically mowed down spots where those deer have been in there eating. Sometimes not. I mean, it just all depends, but I'm going to find those oaks that are loaded with acorns, typically white oaks, swamp chestnuts, um, post oaks. We got a lot of post oaks in this area, which drop a ton of tiny acorns. They look kind of like a pin oak, but they drop hundreds of them and they're sweet. Um, red oaks, are going to be good. They're typically not going to drop until two weeks into the season, three weeks, depending on how the rainfall was all summer or the springtime. Um, I'm going to identify that. I'm going to find the, 
the persimmons. They're good for about the first five to ten days of the season. After that, they're not – I mean, they're useless. Um, if you've got a persimmon that's close to – that you know a buck is in, it's a great opportunity. I've never had good success off a persimmon tree. I've chopped some does off of them, but as far as bucks are concerned, no, sir. Pin oaks, I shot a buck – I'll go into a little story here. I shot a buck uh, three years ago on a pin oak tree that was on a creek right across the creek from this big old pine plantation that it was old, but it was, um, I don't, I don't, I've never seen the pines like this before, but there was like 20 yards or 15 yards in between each pine. So there was enough sunlight coming down that it was thick, but, there was a buck living in there. He's a nine point and I wanted to kill him bad. It was on this 13 acre property. And the only time he come on the property is to eat at night or in the afternoons. Well, it wasn't about three weeks before he moved on to the neighbors, which was a big hay field that hadn't been cut yet. It was about nipple high grass. And he was living there and I had him, I had him pinned down. I'm talking about, I got, trail camera pictures of him crossing the fence every evening 45 minutes before dark coming back um an hour after dark and then coming back in the morning it was it was a done deal well the neighbor of course came in and bush hog that field um uh three days before the season started so it pushed him out again i couldn't find him and then all of a sudden he's but i mean he's still coming to that pin oak tree and which this pin oaks drops September, mid-September, all the way through God knows how long. I mean, it drops those little tiny acorns. Mm -hmm. And um, he's still coming into it. So I'm like, all right. So I go and try it twice. I'm coming in off the road, set up twice. He doesn't come in until 30 minutes after I leave, according to the trail camera. Like, what in the world am I doing wrong? So I try him from another side, my neighbor's side. I say, can I please walk in from your side and just hunt? I made up some kind of lie and told him my, my granddad was working on something. I don't remember what I told him, but ended up coming from the other side, set up in this tree stand, 30 minutes before dark, does perfect, comes out, shot him. Well, when I blood trailed that deer, he had bedded, he was bedding about 60 yards from where I was parking. I, I blood trailed him all the way back to his bed, and I mean, his bed looked like I've never seen it in Mississippi before, but his bed was the size of a king size bed. And it was just down in the dirt. All the cedar trees around it were torn up and he could see the County road 50 yards in front of him. He could see the parking spot. I was at 60, 70 yards behind me. And I finally deduced that he was just laid up right there watching me walk in, past him, go to the deer. He would get up and go back down there and feed. That was my own pressure. But sometimes all it takes is changing up your strategy just a little bit. It's just because you can't kill a deer the way you're going in, maybe you need, if you know he's in there, maybe you need to try a different access. See if maybe your first access wasn't working. Was yeah. that, did that have anything to do with what y'all asked me? Yeah. 
Well, I, I forgot what you asked, Jacob. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. I don't know. It was a good topic. We kind of no, ran yeah, into. you you went right where I wanted you to go with that for sure, especially with the pine okay. thinking thing, man. Someone mentioned the pine thinking. Andrew, I, Andrew gets all like I, hot and my sweaty. My eye starts twitching. <laughs> I hate a pine thinking so much. I hate them. Oh. oh man, I was crawling around in one earlier today. I have a great time in pine oh. thinking. Oh, it's full of it's full of ticks and oh briars man, and yeah, I got three else. off of me today. Um, there you go. But uh, so. When you're looking, so let's say you're looking for like one of these, you know, you're looking for a hot feed tree so and you're keying in on, on these areas that are closer to these thickets. So are you maybe looking at a map and locating a thicket and then kind of cruising down the edge, trying to find that feed tree right there on the, the edge of the thicket in the hardwoods? I've heard y'all talk about Onyx this year. And mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're going through. It's a green. You look at that. Oh, it's, yeah. just sw- it's just, it just might as well be gray i mean yeah you if you've looked at a lot of maps over the years you can kind of tell the difference between oaks an oak bottom the way just the tops of the trees look mm-hmm. in comparison to the pines but um generally speaking i'm looking at the the changes the deciduous changes i want to i don't care about a thousand where it changes and how far that is from a road if it's right up next to the road i'm into it 100 percent. i want to know all about that if it's a long ways from a road how hard is it to get to um if it's like you know 700 yards from a road and there's a hardwood bottom going through a pine thicket i'm not even gonna not even gonna go look at it because i know everybody and their mama's already found it everybody's got onyx these days they're gonna go to that they they say they want to go deep, but they're going to stop at that first good looking spot, and it's going to have lots of sign in it, lots of tracks, lots of scrapes, lots of rubs. But you and I both know it's all nighttime stuff, and and the problem is they'll get lucky <laughs> every <laughs> year or so, and they'll they'll get one, which is great. But um, I guess it's a good thing because it'll keep them going back to it. But mm-hmm. if you want to be consistent, you need to look at that off the wall spot that's right up next to the i mean we've heard this a thousand times but not far from the parking area 100 yards there's a thick spot with a pond and there's a little slash of cattails in the back end of it that opens up into an oak bottom but right down the oak bottom there's another oak bottom that meets it so everybody's gonna be hunting right down there well that buck's living right up there in those cattails or maybe he's living on the neighbors and coming to feed on there as long as there's not better food on the neighbors um so the the most the the best thing that i can tell you is to pay real close attention to your does they're the most important thing that i pay attention to i want to know exactly where every doe is on my property or on the public ground, every doe that I see, every doe that I kick, I want to know where she was. If she was there in the morning time going in, doesn't mean a whole lot to me. If she was there in the middle of the day, if I'm coming out in the middle of the day, that's a little more important. If I kick her up coming out in the evenings, an hour after dark, I definitely want to pay attention to that. Because when she's coming out, if I'm busting her when I'm coming out, well, I was way off the game where I was at. And um, I want to pay real close attention to my to 
to those does and why they were there. I want to try and figure that out while I'm there. Are they eating or something right here? Are they in transition? Anytime I'm in the woods and I have a doe come through that's hot, I 100% want to know, want to try to remember that, try to figure out something that would um, make her stick out comparison to other does where she got double throat patch. She's got a missing, some hide missing off her shoulder, whatever it is, a weird hoof. If you can, she's going to come in to heat every year at the same time within a couple of days. If you, if you find a doe that's in heat and you got a buck behind her, even if it's a tiny buck, you need to remember that for next year or the year, the year after that. I know of four different does on the properties that can hunt. I can tell you within a couple of days when they come into heat and one of the does in particular, I've killed two really nice bucks off of the backside of her. Now those have been two different years, but, Every year, she's an old doe. She's got little frosty-tipped ears. And I know the within a day or two of when she comes in the heat, I'm going to be there. I'm going to take off work if I have to. I'm going to be there that four- or five-day period when she comes in the heat, and I'm going to be hunting that spot if the wind's right. Now, that is fascinating. Did Wes talk about that? Uh, Wes Bowie? Yeah. I don't know. Did you put, All right, get, put go me under pressure? Okay. Go what you were no, but uh, Lynn, that, that's that's really fascinating, especially on the aspect of you know if you're running a bunch of trail cameras, you can, like you said, can you use uh, you know your experience being in the woods and uh, especially like you said, you know, figuring out where the does are located and kind of learning what they're doing in order to try to figure out what the bucks you're going to do, especially come rut. But uh, a question I've got for you is, uh, you know, when it comes to hunting these deer, especially on public land. You're talking about, you know, sometimes they're betting, you know, real close, like you said, to access points and stuff like that, you know, really thick overlooked spots. Um, what is there any other overlooked spots kind of in general uh, that is something that, uh, you know, maybe you've had success on, uh, whether, you know, it's on public land or private land uh, in regards to that? Success. But I have found a lot of deer tend to bed up a lot closer to people's houses than you would think. Um, I don't know that that's, you know, I've never seen a, a giant buck do that, but you never know because buck, giant bucks don't do anything in particular that you can say, well, it, bucks do this or bucks do that. Um, bucks do some weird shit. Uh, there was one in particular that I hunted a few years ago. He would bet in a cane thicket, and dude, I'm telling you, it was the most mosquito-infested place I've ever been in my life. I have never, I will never set foot back in that place, but I don't know if he had some kind of immunity to him. They wouldn't mess with him, but you could walk up to the edge of that cane thicket and it was, you would get attacked. It was horrific. Um, after all the hunting pressure, he decided mosquitoes were better than dying. Um, I don't know. Uh, as far as bedding in weird spots, um, there's one that <laughs> in West Point, Mississippi, I'll give this one away right now. And it might lead to somebody get going to jail, but there was one on the side of a hardware store. There's a slough off the side of highway 45 that would bed <laughs> up and anybody and everybody could drive and park on the side of 45 and look 50 yards off the road. And there's 145 inch 10 point laying there every day of the year. He would bed up right there. You, you can go by there anytime 
during the middle of the day and he'd be sitting right out there. Um, but nobody ever killed him. Nobody could kill him. If somebody killed him, we didn't know anything about it, but <laughs> it's just one of those spots. Well, let me, well, let me ask you this kind of a little more in general, when it comes to where you're finding deer, uh, how does that correlate when it comes to hunting pressure? You know, how, how do you, how does, you know, hunting pressure affect the way you hunt, especially maybe a little bit later on in the season when hunting pressure maybe, you know, gets ramped up a little bit more. Those deer are going to be exactly where you don't expect them to be. That's why they've been, um, that's why they survive. There's one spot in particular that they can bed. I mean, there's a, it's kind of hard to describe. The road comes down and it bends off. It peels off to the right. There's a parking area. And then the main access goes all the way to the back. It's a straight shot all the way to the river. Well, Right there by the access, there's a big ridge that comes up over to the left and it drops off and there's some private ground. Those bucks, uh, I found a buck in the past that would bed right the back of that ridge. And I don't know if it's because he could hear the people coming down the gravel road before they made that bend off to the right or if he was just dumb. I don't know. But... um he survived, I guess, because I never killed him. And I got pictures of him for two years before he disappeared. I don't know if he died or he just wised up and moved on. Um, but as far as, you know, bucks, I don't know half of what they do. I don't know a quarter of what they do or why they do it. It's just... If you lived in the woods all the time and somebody was constantly hunting, you'd be very creative as well. Let me ask That's you this. Well, another question I've got. So we kind of talked early season, you know, what you're looking for when we're talking public land, uh, what you're kind of scouting for and stuff like that. You know, you said you only hunt public land for a little bit. Like I think you said early season, then you kind of dive into your private land. But, you know, when it comes to a little bit later on in the season, uh, maybe getting on to late, late October going into November, um, you know, what are you looking for at that time, at that time span? Are you still focusing on those feed trees and trying to find those hot feed trees? Are you focusing more so on likely bedding areas and thick locations that you think the deer are kind of held up in? You know, what does that look like for you after, you know, three or four weeks of the season? Well, all right. So our rut typically happens anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are around me. Um, and I'm hunting, I will say, anywhere in the northeastern quadrant of the state could be you could get a hot doe anywhere from november 15th right there but right about the time of rifle season all the way till february 30th um so at that time i like clear i'm paying real close attention to does does are going to be bedding typically they got three or four spots where they bed and it may be related to food it may be related to pressure it could be a number of things um but i'm going to really start focusing in at that time of the year i i I made the mistake a couple of years ago of hunting one specific deer and it took me three years to finally kill him um i won't do that anymore um i pick out deer that i would like to shoot and i try to hunt them but if something comes along that i like i'll whack it um the the does i 
try to set up according to those does. I do more scouting for does, and when I'm hunting, I pay real close attention to where they're coming from, um, what they're feeding on, all that, because they're not going to change. They don't. So they don't participate. I guess you'd say in the. They're just hot, and they get pushed around. They're going to do what they do. They're going to go to bed every morning. When it when the daylight comes up, a little after daylight, they're going to go eat before daylight. If you can pattern those does, you're going to kill a buck. It doesn't matter whether it's the buck you want to kill or not. That's that's everything. The does, in my opinion, that is the most important thing you can know is where they like to spend time and where they're coming from. Um, so, but that being said, that time of the year, um, I'm going to be really paying attention to where those does are coming from, where the does are feeding. And I'm going to keep in mind the spots where I have had buck sign. I don't really, I don't hunt over scrapes. I don't hunt over rubs. Um, creek crossings are a big deal to me, especially in areas that I know hold a buck. Um, I killed, he was 154-inch, three-year-old. Three hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, you broke up for a second. W- would you go back? So you're talking about hunting creek crossings, and you, you're jumping into a hunt. So what about creek crossings again? That I put a lot of prospect in the three uh, creek crossings, um, especially where I know a buck is and where he likes to associate. Um, I killed one a few years ago. He was a hundred and fifty-four inch three-point. I mean, three-year-old. Um, I was about to which, say, holy crap! Yeah, yeah 150-point. <laughs> uh, now he was the easiest deer I've ever killed in my life. All I had to do was wait on the right conditions. Just so happened, um, the right conditions happened October fifth or third, whatever it was. Um, the right wind blowing up a creek crossing. He came across. He's basic. He's a dumb three-year-old. The reason I killed him was because there was a giant oak tree where I knew they were feeding. I knew he was in there. He was in there all summer long because this spot is a hay field, and they eat and the, they feed in that hay field and whatever kind of grass that is all year long, all summer long. And then in the fall, it's perfect because the oaks start dropping right on the crop, right, right there at the end of the fall when the grass turns bad so uh yeah i mean it was just the easiest kill in the world he just happened to be a big deer it meant nothing it's all based off of where the does are at that time of the year i mean i can't stress the importance of knowing your does more than you know your bucks because the bucks are unpredictable those does are super predictable so how are you keeping track of those does are you doing it through observations while you're hunting or are you running cameras pretty heavy on them um, a little bit of both. Um, the, you know, if you've got 11 acres or a 20 acre piece, you're not going to have a lot of those. You can pretty much, um, pick them out every time. Like one of them, there's four does and two fawns this past year's what was there. And I would see them just about every time I hunted because these small pieces, you can regulate them however you want. You're the only one or maybe somebody, maybe one other person hunts them. I would uh, suggest getting to know those other people quite intimately. Not too intimately, but <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but uh, you you can wait till time's right to go in there and hunt them, you know. And if you've got four does and 
two yearlings, you know for a fact those older does are going to come in sometime late November, early December, maybe late December. Just you'll learn that over a year or two. But you can be sure that late January those young does are going to come in. Um, man, God, they're going to be they're the easiest ones to kill a buck behind. I, I really pray for the poor bucks that follow those young does around because those young does have no sense whatsoever. They just, they walk out in the middle of highway 50 and just lay down and the buck will be right there behind him with his tongue hanging out. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, that's the kind of deer I'm looking for. <laughs> absolutely. I don't care if he's 4.12 inches wide. <laughs> he, he's going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Man. Yeah. So we're coming up, we're sitting at one hour and 11 minutes, so we're coming up on time here. So, Land, is there any subject that we're stupid for not asking you about? I want to know. There's nothing you're stupid for. Jesus. <laughs> um, I, I would say, um, let me see. You've got a small piece of property, and you can bait. I highly suggest putting... A feeder, if you can afford it, which, let's be honest, it doesn't take much to afford to put a feeder out. Fill that sucker up right in the middle of the property. Put a camera on it. See what's coming to it. If there's something you like, drop a net around him. Identify the easy, the, the, the paths of travel coming to and from it. And that means, look, side note, anybody that says you can't find a small piece of property, for permission is has not asked enough i've asked every just about every piece of property with a five mile radius that's less than 50 acres go after those small properties because most of your big ones got somebody hunting them just go ask it doesn't hurt to ask you might get a shotgun in your face deal with it um but once you get that property you got it it's yours and drop that feeder right in the middle of it or wherever it makes sense the ideal situation would be the deer are bedding off of that property and coming on to feed. That is the most, the absolute best situation, mm-hmm. ideal. Um, that way you can you can check that camera as much as you want, um, see where they're coming from, identify the travel locations, and then go in and capitalize. Wait on the right wind. That I mean, it's it doesn't get any easier than that. Um, other than that. Just have fun. I mean, it ain't that serious. Just don't worry about shooting the biggest, baddest deer in. It all eats the same. Yeah, yeah, man. Don't don't take it too seriously. We're supposed to be having fun after all. So absolutely. So you're talking about um, just like clean up on that a little bit to make sure I heard it right. So you you put the the feeder in the middle of the property uh, with cameras on it with the intention of not hunting that feeder but hunting around it. No, absolutely. Don't hunt the feeder. Okay. You'll shoot yourself. That's just shooting yourself in the foot. Because you're, you're um, going to push the deer off? Yeah. I mean, especially if you go in there and you say, all right, he's coming in here every evening. Inevitably, he will not show up and you'll be stuck there and he'll show up. Trust me, I've done this when I years ago. He'll show up right after dark and now you've got to leave and you're going to blow him out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or you're going to sit there till 10 o'clock at night until every deer leaves so um leave those spots as safe spots leave the food safe i prefer afternoon spot uh hunts over morning try and get in there 
in the evening if you don't get him right after dark i mean right before dark you can slip out um because you're not you're not at the food you're not where he's bedding you're in between mm-hmm. it's if it, i've kind of got to the point where if i don't get him within legal light i'm gonna leave as soon as possible because i don't want to be waiting until you know, pitch black, leave, then bust him out. I'm going to leave as soon as I run out of legal light. Okay. So. Yeah, dude. Makes sense to me. That's that's very applicable to Alabama hunters now. Uh, if you got some private land in Bama, because now we can hunt over bait. And a lot of people, a lot of bucks got killed over corn last year for sure. But I've heard, you know, just general conversations about it. A lot of people are like, yeah, a lot of people were killing them over corn last year. But, you know, over the next two and three years, you know, they'll start getting wise to it. As if right. people haven't been shooting them over corn in Alabama for right. a been, long, long time. Yeah, it's been going on forever. <laughs> but the the uh, shoot, I was about to say something. Oh, um, you know, with it being legal, the only reason I do it is because if you don't, everybody around you will. So you might as well give them something to eat to try and help them out a little bit. Because most of us, if you listen to podcasts, you're a little above average. I would like to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to just go willy nilly shooting everything that walks. I mean, so I guess some of them. I don't know. Do, you haven't but... met Jacob. Oh, dude, I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say the same thing. I was going to call myself I mean, it out. I how deep in the season I am. But... <laughs> listen, listen, I love a full freezer and then get selected. Anyways, all right, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. I mean, especially, like I said, around here, everybody hunts, everybody's got a dang feeder. Uh, in front of their box stand where they kill them Miller lights, boy. Get in there and, I mean, you know, you just, you, if you're not feeding, you're not seeing much, unfortunately. I hate it that it's that way, but it's true. Especially if you make that feeds area safe where you're not shooting deer over it, oh, man, it gets, it gets good. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, you know, when it comes to, like, the whole feeding thing. I, I haven't hunt. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't hunt any, We've got I've got a uh, family-owned private farm uh, in Central Alabama um, that uh, my uncle started feeding on this past year, but I didn't hunt it this past year. But um, he was telling me, you know, he had some pretty good experiences on it doing it this year. Like what you're saying, you know, not shooting deer over the feed, but having feed in the center of the property. Uh, which again, you know, if someone's got a family farm or something, that's what they're doing right now. You know, right on. I mean, do do what you got to do to kind of keep deer there and you know hunt how you want to hunt. But I got a question: when when you're hunting public land, especially early season. Um, not having to worry about like you know filling up you know feeders and all that kind of stuff is it something that you know you you maybe um i don't know if necessarily like appreciate it more but it's like a little more simple way of hunting just kind of going in on some public you know taking the boat in you know hunting off the ground or whatever and just you know just hunting that sign i mean is there something that's kind of maybe you know early in the season you kind of you know uh you know maybe relax a little bit from that and then you can you know dive in hard on your on your small properties as the season kind of wanes on it means 10 times more to kill a buck off public land. I don't care what anybody says. I know they're the same animals, but to pull that animal off of a spot where everybody and their mama can go to, especially when everybody and their mama does go to it, um, it just means more. Um, that sounds that probably sounds terrible, but the, you get back to your basics. You get back to your roots because we didn't all – I mean, I guess some of us did, but – we most of us didn't start hunting feeders you don't start that way you start by sitting 
you know, either on a five gallon bucket or maybe you sat in a box stand over a food plot, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you, you, good luck killing deer off of food plots on public ground, but man, you catch them going to it. That's a pretty good feeling. You can do it pretty consistently too. Yeah. Uh, especially if you, I didn't, cause they're going to feed. They're not just going, you know, steer clear of it just because that's where people hunt they'll be there it just might be after dark but mm-hmm. if you can identify where they may be laying up or whatever and get in between it it's it's a game you, you just gotta go you just gotta go a bunch you'll learn something every time you go well all right man Jacob, you got anything? No, Lane. I've I've appreciated the conversation, dude. Um, it's been it's been entertaining and also just a, a good eye opener about your perspective, especially you know the way you you know use boat axes on public land, hunting off the ground, and also you know for any of the guys out there, because you know we do have a lot of listeners on the podcast uh, that listen to the podcast that uh, do hunt public, but I know we have I mean a lot of people that listen to the podcast that hunt you know private leases throughout the southeast and throughout the country. Uh, whether they're on a club or just a family lease. Um, and now with, you know, Alabama opening up where they can hunt with bait and uh, use that effectively, you know, Georgia and Mississippi uh, kind of all in the same uh, part. And I, I think Arkansas is the same as well. You know, be smart about like you were doing and uh, have fun with it. Uh, again, it's just another cool way to, you know, kind of try to be successful and uh, get after the, the deer that we all love chasing, whether it's with a, a bow, you know, a rifle, or, you know, even a pistol, <laughs> whatever you like to yeah, hunt with. Yeah, You're gonna get, gonna... yeah I, saw, I saw that picture you put up. That's that's gangster, dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's out there glocking some does, man. <laughs> yeah, like, you have it sideways when you shot <laughs> oh, oh, man. I was like, damn. Yeah. Country Biscuit's my gangster name. Come on. Come on. Yes, sir. That's awesome. Keep whacking them, brother. I'm proud of you. (laughs) I I appreciate it. I enjoy it. Epic. Oh, man. Awesome. Well, Lane, again, it's been been a good time freaking talk to you on the podcast. Um, And good luck uh, with you for this season. I know we'll have to keep up. And uh, maybe do a little episode a little later on the season uh, as everything progresses. But I know you're probably fired up for this fall. We're fired up. I know you're still chasing some uh, catfish right now too. But uh, man, this summer I've got a feeling this summer is going to fly by and season's going to be here before we know it. Oh yeah, it's already fine. But I, I got one question before you go. I'm, I know I'm taking your time. Uh, if this quarantine continues, beats, uh, begin, uh, continues or opens back up, say in the fall. What do you think that's going to – because it's been a bad, bad deal for the turkeys around here. Good point. Mm-hmm. Super good point. Um, I think if it's a, still a stay-at-home order, um, you know, unfortunately there's going to be a lot of people out of work and probably financially going to be struggling. But, of course, there's going to be a lot of people out in the woods, and we'll see how that plays on public land, especially during the week, which, you know, because of my job, I don't get to hunt much during the week at all. Actually, I don't get to hunt at all during the week. Um, but for guys that can get out or, you know, if that does happen – I think there's going to be a ton of hunters out there. But the good thing is, if that's the case, if that is the case, I really feel like if you listen to the show and kind of have an idea of some super, super thick cover you can dive into, I feel like those deer are going to be stacked in there, man. Because you can't kill them all. Especially around here, man. Those pines, they're going to get in that thick stuff. And if you can hunt that smart, dude, I think it would be not shooting fish in a barrel, but I feel like you're going to be on some deer. I'll tell you what, I would treat it. I would treat if that does happen because I've thought about it. If that happened, I would treat it exactly like 
the second gun weekend of the season. Mm-hmm. I would treat it Bulls, exactly that. Like makes my stomach hurt listening to you say that. <laughs> <laughs> Be like both oh. season, man. Everybody and their brother. It's like a pumpkin patch. All the orange. <laughs> yeah. <out there. laughs> it's like fireworks going off. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's that's what I do. I, yeah, man. I. Because, I mean, the deer, they'll act the same. I mean, it's the same pressure that they get yeah. on those gun hunts. So I, I think, I mean, I would assume they'd act the same. Yeah, and Andrew's way. talking about in Alabama, you know, a lot of our public lands, we don't have – it's not open season the whole season for rifles because mm-hmm. uh, we have a very long rifle season here, a firearm season. So they have des- – a lot of management areas have designated gun hunts for the weekends. And when those hunts come in, it's it's a Wild West rodeo. Uh, but the cool thing is a lot of those guys want to hunt in a place that they can see a really long ways. And unless they're sitting way up high above a, you know, a two or three year old cutover, most guys are going to be down the hardwoods or like on power lines or, or gas lines, stuff like that. We're like, if you get in those thickets, you can get away from some of those people. And Hey, like you, like you talked about, man, use some of that hunting pressure to your advantage. Let them push some deer towards you and sit all day. Um, it can be an awesome hunt if you get the patience for it. So yeah, go get you a kayak. Good afternoon. Yeah, man. No joke. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.